Hey guys, Hutch's editor Kodiak here. What you're about to listen to is a podcast called Fitter Happier. This podcast may contain triggering topics for some, and listeners' discretion is advised. If you enjoy, please make sure to give it a five-star review on whatever service you're listening on, like iTunes. It really helps us get the show out there to more people. All right, here's the episode. Cool. So welcome, Hutch. Thank you. Can you uh, start by telling us a little bit about um, what kind of you know, stuff you do on the inter- interwebs and where we can find you? Sure. Yeah. So typically if you just search Hutch on most of the platforms, you, sh- you should find me. There's another Hutch out there. I'm sorry to disappoint some people in your chat. My chat was saying that some people in your chat was, were expecting another Hutch who does GTA RP. Uh, that's unfortunately not me, but I started doing video stuff with video games and YouTube in 2008 uh, when there were no gamers that were doing it for money. So back then we were like the, the original people that were doing it, it was just a hobby. And then y'all are the OGs. Yeah. Some people would call me an OG. Sure. Yeah. And then, um, people figured out that if you can get enough people to watch it, then you can make money doing it. And sort of the rest is history. But since then I've sort of gone through, like I've had to reinvent myself a couple times. I'm a little bit older now. And, um, so, you know, I dabble in political coverage as well as video game stuff. And more recently I've started a podcast of my own discussing mental health best practices with other creators. And uh, that's, oh, wow. that's been a ton of fun. And um, uh, you know, I try to advocate for, for people to take care of themselves and be open about their struggles. And that's something I always have done with the platform that I have. So I reached out to you thinking like it would just be such a great uh, idea to sit down and get a chance to talk to you. Cool. So um, can you tell me a little bit more about the podcast or tell us a little bit more about the podcast? Um, yeah, it's just, uh, it's just this podcast. I, I call it fitter, happier. It's a, that's a Radiohead song and there's some lyrics behind that that makes sense, but no, it's just, I bring in other creators and, and I, you know, I try to make it clear that I'm not a therapist and so, and this isn't therapy. And, uh, you know, that if they have any questions, they should, if, if any viewers have any questions, they should definitely consult a professional. And, uh, and then we just talk about people's various struggles, uh, more specifically as it pertains to content creation, because there's this expectation that you're always supposed to be on, you're always supposed to be happy and funny. Um, and I'm trying to challenge that as much as I can, because I think that that can lead to bad outcomes sometimes. Yeah. Can you explain that a little bit? Sure. I just think that um, it's easy to get lost in your online persona when you do this for a living. That's happened to me a couple of times. I've struggled with sort of a sense of identity of who I was. And uh, there were different times where I was letting the kind of person that I would become while recording content, I was sort of letting that take over uh, most of my personality. Uh, and that person wasn't very likable to me when I, when it, when I would stop and think about it. Uh, mm. So, um, yeah, I would say that, that issues of identity and kind of keeping a solid foundation of who I am has been something that I've struggled with and, it's gotten a lot better for me recently, but it's, it's, it's been my downfall a couple, couple different times. And is, so Hutch, did you have, thanks so much for sharing, man. Like there's so much there that I would love to talk to you about. Yeah. Um, I wanted to just uh, kind of clarify a couple of things. So w- what do you think would be like a good use of our time today? Like, do you want to talk about, you, you know, what you've sort of learned running the podcast, uh, kind of like talking about content creation or were you ha- hoping to have, or do you think it would be more productive to have a little bit more of a personal conversation? Cause I'm super curious about your experience of, 
you know, figuring out who you are uh-huh. and sort of getting lost in your identity and, and things like that. I think the latter would be the, a better, a better um, way to spend this time of, of discussing uh, the, the personal stuff. I don't know if I have too much of an interest in discussing like the podcast stuff. Okay, cool. And, and so uh, just to clarify, is your understanding that what we're doing, if we're going to have a personal conversation, is your understanding that you kind of mentioned on your podcast that you kind of say consult a professional? Mm-hmm. Do you think that what we're doing today is therapy? Um, not in the strictest sense of the word, I wouldn't say. Okay. Um, so what, what do you think we are going to do today? Well, just to clarify, I, I have my own therapist. And so like, I understand that the sessions that I have with that therapist are going to be um, comprehensive and long-term and that sort of thing. And I understand that this is just a conversation. So, um, okay. I'm sorry, I forgot your question. What was it again? Oh, that's fine. Okay. So I, I'm, I'm kind of curious. So you um, mentioned, like, I was really intrigued by what you said about like loss uh, you sort of lost your sense of identity and sort of had trouble figuring out kind of who you are. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. You know, I think if, if I go all the way back to when I was a kid, I struggled with, um, relating to my peers, getting along with my peers. I was very, uh, social, very, very naturally hyper social. When I was a, a young, young kid, I would walk up and introduce myself to strangers and, um, I was just very curious about the world. And then when I got into uh, second grade, I went to like a private Catholic school. And that was in that Catholic school through uh, 12th grade. It took me a long time to connect with my peers. I was sort of ostracized and teased and that kind of thing. And what I figured out at some point was if I can make them laugh, then I can sort of get into the in crowd. And so I I didn't realize it, but I was sort of modeling my personality back then based on what other people thought of me. And I wasn't really spending a lot of time with my own self and, you know, cultivating the things within me that I liked. Um, And uh, by the time I got to adulthood, just generally speaking, that was very confusing because I didn't know Hmm. who I was. And uh, that, that question terrified me. What was scary about that question? Well, imagine thinking that you have an idea of who you are and then all of a sudden something comes along and challenges that. Uh, it, it just feels like the rug is pulled out from underneath you. All of a sudden it felt like I didn't know how to interact with people. I didn't know how to exist in the world. And so like really small and mundane things like an interaction with a barista at Starbucks provoked a ton of anxiety for me. Like just everything was overwhelming. Um, can you help me understand that? Um, it's kind of, I mean, I don't know how else to explain it. I mean, everything, I was just afraid all the time. It was just fear was <laughs> a, fear, My God. fear was a very, um, present emotion constantly. Every waking moment of the day, I was consumed with fear. Uh, Holy shit, dude. That sounds terrible. Oh, it was, yeah, it was tough. It was, it was real tough. Yeah. How did that start? Um, well, back then I was, uh, I was abusing marijuana, like, uh, quite a bit, uh, to the point where I, you know, I went from being on the Dean's list my first semester to almost failing out my second semester of college. Uh, so it, for me at the time, it was helping me to just sort of cope with things. I was still having fun. I was still like, you know, having a good time with life. 
And then uh, after a while, marijuana would provoke uh, really intense panic attacks. I think that's what really kicked it off. Like I would, I would have these conversations with myself uh, when I was high. And those conversations, I didn't, I didn't have any good answers to the things that I was asking myself. And so I would invent these horrible things about myself to sort of explain, you know, why I was having a hard time. So I just, I would, uh, I became like a bad person in my own mind. I thought I was a monster. Hmm. Can, can you, um, I, I'm having trouble envisioning what you were saying to yourself. And because it sounds like you were trying to make sense of something. Right, you were coming. Your mind was generating hypotheses yeah. to explain your situation. Yeah. So, can can you help us understand a little bit about like what kind of situation would you kind of come up with some sort of answer for or understanding? Um, it's hard to go back and remember the specifics. Honestly, mostly it was just nonsense. Like I, you know, uh, if I had a if I had a awkward interaction with a girl or something like that, well, that meant that I was you know, forever going to be this awkward weirdo mess. And I was just doomed to be like that forever. And, and you can apply that, you can imagine applying that to all different types of things. But if I could give you like one example, that would be like one example that I would give you of, of a story that I would tell myself to sort of try to make sense of why I was struggling so much. It wasn't that I had gone through hard stuff as a kid and, and I was just having difficulty sort of unraveling all that when I was an adult. It was oh, I'm just this fundamentally bad person. I'm, I'm, I'm crazy. I felt like I, I thought I was going to lose my mind. I became convinced that I was going to eventually just lose my mind. How did you get, become convinced of that? Um, well, I mean, just if you, can, if you can imagine just feeling afraid all the time and like what that would do to your thought process, you're not really going to mm. have a lot of like rational thoughts when you're in a place of total fear. Like my body was, was releasing adrenaline and cortisol as if i was being chased by a tiger in the in the, in the you know rainforest or something but it was like yeah. that all the time for for no uh rational reason it was none of it was rational and did it seem rational at the time yeah i firmly believed it yeah <laughs> oh hutch yeah. So first of all, I, I really um, I think there's a lot of good that can come out of this conversation. And part of that is because I can tell that you've grown a lot. And, and so I think what could be really illustrative is. Um, is we sort of explore where you were and how you got to where you are, I think it could actually give people a roadmap who are like where you were maybe years ago. Mm -hmm. Um but I want to ask you, is there something in particular that you kind of wanted to talk about or anything that, that maybe I could help you with? Anything you're curious yeah, about, given? Yeah, so I, I knew that you would ask this question because I saw that you, you start these sessions by asking that same question. And I've been sort of grappling a little bit with uh, like what I wanted to talk about. I mean, I can tell you that uh, I had a sister pass away about a year ago, and I was there for uh -huh. her, the last week of her life. Um, I was there like with her, you know, me and my family took care of her as she was dying. And that has had a really profound impact on me. And it's sort of triggered similar feelings of confusion about my identity because it, when it actually happened, it felt like I was entering this new phase of my life. Like it felt like I was a different person after that experience happened because it was, you can, 
I'm sure many people can just imagine how difficult that would be. So um, that's been something that's been challenging for me recently. And this is something that you've talked about uh, with your therapist is aware of this? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, sure. So let me just, can I think for a second? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it, the, the grief part itself is pretty, I think, straightforward at this point for me, but it, it that, that experience sort of re relates to this other sort of broader issue of identity and, um, and, and, and my difficulties with that. So I just want to you, clarify you... that. Yeah. I think I, I think I, I took that away from what you said. Yeah. Um, so how can you can you just explain that a little bit so what happened to your sense of identity when your sister passed away um how did well, you start to think about yourself well there was a lot of guilt because uh she was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer at the end of 2019 uh which has a very high mortality rate as many many uh -huh. viewers probably know it's 95 percent of people that get it die and uh i had all these plans of going up and they lived in the she lived in the bay area where the rest of my family i had all these plans of going up and spending time with her every month and then you know a couple months later the pandemic started and so i didn't get to spend a lot of time with her um for her last year so i feel quite a bit of guilt about that um i wish i would have said more to her uh during that time Okay. Um, and so that has led me to feel uh, a lot of guilt. So that's been something that's, uh, you can, you can kind of get lost in that guilt, I think. So, mm -hmm. yeah. So, um, let me just, so Hutch, I'm tempted to ask you a question, which I think will, uh, advance the conversation but i'm concerned that it may not be a nice question or may evoke some negative emotion uh, what do I'm, you think we should do i'm okay with being challenged that that way okay so let me ask you this so it sounds like your sister was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and you know you're right it has a very high mortality rate um and so you had plans to visit her and then the pandemic hit mm-hmm and then you spent the last week with her. So I'm kind of curious, what kind of person doesn't vis visit their terminally ill sister with cancer the year before they die? Uh, well, I think that could be like a really broad question because I think a lot of people could have different reasons for not doing that. In this case, it was I was asked not to come. Um, so it wasn't like I was choosing not to come. It was, she was already mm -hmm. sick and they were taking the pandemic very seriously. And so was I, so, um, so then why the guilt? Uh, well, I could have picked up the phone more. Um, and I didn't know what to say to her to make her feel better. And, um, and I think a part of me avoided picking up the phone. And th I think that's where I feel the most amount of guilt. It's not like okay, we didn't, so it's not like we didn't talk. And there was also a large stretches where she was very sick and couldn't pick up the phone, even if she wanted to, but it's just something that I think about. I, I, there was just so much that I wanted to say 
And I also didn't want to remind her that she was dying. So I, I had no idea how to have that conversation with her. Sorry, I don't, sometimes when things get really morbid, I just, I, I laugh because if I don't laugh, I'll cry. Um, so I know it sounds kind of weird, but what, what do you, so you feel guilty about not calling her or not knowing what to say or? Uh, both. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, both. Um, I, I wish when she was much more lucid and much more capable of having those phone calls, I wish I would have used the phone more. I wish I would have called her every night. Um, and, it, and it took me going up there and seeing her deteriorating to realize that I, that a mistake that I had made. Um, And it's, uh, that's just difficult to deal with because it's so final. You, there's no, there's no do-overs with that. Can you help me understand where identity comes into this? So I'm, I'm hearing that after she passed away, you said something about, you know, it's kind of related and, and you started to think about yourself differently. Yeah. So I'm, I'm very blessed at this point in my life. I have a relationship that is very stable. Um, we just got engaged actually this last weekend. So I feel congratulations, really, man. Thank you. I, I mean, she's just such a great partner to me. And so she's been there to help me go through this. And so if I was alone, I think I may have fallen into old patterns of coping. Um, which is to say like very destructive patterns. Um, so when I look at like what's happened, my, my feelings of guilt around what happened with my sister, uh, you know, absent my relationship, I think that could have been like a really dark time for me, um, where I can get into kind of like really avoidant behavior or sometimes really destructive, destructive behavior. Um, and so I guess, I guess maybe it makes more sense to focus on just like in terms of our discussion, how to get through the difficulties of this life without shutting down or um, falling into destructive patterns of coping. Well, it sounds like you're doing pretty good at that. I'm doing okay. I mean, it, it, it's a struggle sometimes, but I'm actually doing much better than I used to, which is very good. Good for you, man. Thanks. So I think if we want to talk about avoidance, you know, what is it that you would be avoiding? In what context? So you kind of mentioned that if, if it wasn't for this relationship, you're afraid you would have fallen into avoidance behaviors. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. And so there are avoidance behaviors, but then there's also like, what is it that you're avoiding? So what do you, what, what do you think you would have tried to avoid? Mm, I think I would have tried to avoid the pain just the emotional pain and the and what hurts like how does it affect my body like physically or um <clears throat> yeah i mean what hurt? sure physically mentally if 
if I go through a really difficult or challenging thing, sometimes my anxiety can become so overwhelming that it's difficult to function. Uh, it's difficult to work, especially in the kind of profession that I do, where it's like my job to basically entertain people. And uh, that can be difficult when you are constantly hurting. Uh, difficult sounds like the understatement of the year. Hutch. It's impossible. Yeah. I've, I've dipped, <laughs> I've dipped from content creation a couple different times, just totally dipped and disappeared for a little bit. And, um, yeah. yeah. So can you tell me like when you say, okay, let me, let me try it a different way. So you said that you were avoiding picking up the phone. Can you help me understand what was hard about picking up the phone? Um, well, she had, uh, she and some other people in my family were, um, they wanted to have hope that she could, uh, overcome the diagnosis and that she could be a part of that 5%. And I operate much more, I don't know what the word I'm thinking. I look at odds and I look at statistics and I, and I take them at face value. And so I began grieving basically right when the diagnosis was given. I began preparing for that eventual outcome. Um, but I also was conscious of the, I didn't want to bring that around her. I didn't want her to experience that any kind of pessimism or uh, fatalism when it came to accepting the, the outcome or the uh, probable outcome. And so that just made it difficult for me because I didn't know what, I didn't know what to say a lot of the time because I couldn't say anything to make her feel better. And I couldn't take away her pain. She had also just given birth to a little boy. Like she had wanted to be her mom her whole life. And so she had just given birth and then it was only a couple months after the, the birth that she got the diagnosis. And so the whole story is just um, very, very, very sad. I mean, her, her little boy is, is great, and it's just he's such a blessing to be around. So we're, we're all very grateful that she, she gave him us, or she gave us him b before she left. But um, it was just so overwhelmingly sad to me that I didn't want to make her sad either. And so I would just think about her a lot instead of picking up the phone. And she was just constantly on my mind. So I'm hearing that, you know, there's almost i uh, I'm going to use a loaded word here. There's almost like a, a propaganda going on, right? Uh, there's a, there's a sense of, um, you know, playing the music while the Titanic goes down where your sister and, and maybe the rest of your family were like shooting for optimism. Yeah. And, and what I'm hearing was really hard for you is that like, you kind of saw the odds and you were like, like you couldn't be optimistic in this circumstance. But I was, but I didn't fault them for, for wanting that. I understood why she would I, want to hang on to that. It made perfect sense. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I, and I'm, I, I kind of get you. Like, I, I, I think I understand your struggle because there you are sort of facing the reality and there they are holding on to hope, which like makes perfect sense. Right. Yeah. And when someone's got cancer, like you want people around you, like giving you hope. You don't want people around you, you know, 
And so you were kind of what I'm almost hearing is that like you were almost protecting her by not picking up the phone. I don't know if I quite thought about it that way at the time. It felt when I look back on it, it feels cowardly. It feels like I should have just powered through and maybe even faked it. Yeah, so that I can understand. So like maybe maybe what you should have done is fake it, right? That makes sense. Yeah. Um, you know, pick up the phone and and be falsely optimistic and like be like a, you know, a cheerleader for her. Mm-hmm. Um, but and I can see that for sure. At the same time I I do wonder a little bit cuz what I'm sort of hearing is that she couldn't kind of afford to have your mentality be a part of her sphere. Um, I think that would have been really difficult for her if I, you know, if I, if I would have brought that energy into, into her life. Yeah. So I, I'm, I am kind of hearing, and I'm curious, what do you, what do you think about that? Cause that, that does seem quite, quite, you know, brotherly to me to sort of recognize that you're in a dark place and, and you're seeing these like negative odds and like, you don't want to expose your sister to that. Cause you know, heaven knows she's got enough to deal with. Yeah, that's an accurate, accurate characterization, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And what do you what do you think about it when I sort of say it like that? I still beat myself up. I mean, the louder voice is saying just you should have just faked it. You should have just picked up the call and faked it. And Yeah. Um, I think that makes a lot of sense. What else is that voice saying? Um, I just miss her. I told myself I wasn't going to cry. Okay, we... Are you crying? Um, yeah, a little bit. I, I just miss her a lot. I miss her a lot. That doesn't sound to me like the same voice that is calling you a coward. Well, there's a lot of voices lighting up there sometimes. Yep. So, I, I mean, do you think the one that... So here's what I'm envisioning. There's a, there's a toxic voice in there, right? We're going to call it toxic, but there's, maybe there's a part of you that tells you, I'm not really toxic, I'm just real. Mm-hmm. I'm the reality of it. Yeah. And, and it's kind of saying, you know, like, you should have manned up. You should have, like, you know, put on a bright face. You should have been optimistic. If that voice is really, really devastating, it may even say maybe if you had done that, things would have been different today. Does it ever say those kinds of things? No. Okay. No. I'm happy to hear that. Yeah. Um, and so you feel, you mentioned cowardly, and I think that's a good word because it implies, like, an identity. Right, like sadness is not an identity. Cowardly is an identity. You see that? Yeah. And so, what do you, what do you kind of? I'm going to ask a question I asked before, but just modify it a little bit. What kind of person doesn't put on a brave face for their sister dying of cancer? Someone who's selfish. Um, somebody who uh, can't put the needs of somebody else uh, ahead of their own. In a time that calls for it the most, um, 
I think selfish selfishness is more a more accurate description of that toxic voice uh, than cowardly. I think, although I think maybe they can be a little intertwined. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I, I can sort of see that. I can see how those two are intertwined in the sense that, you, you know, you weren't able to put her first, right? And the reason you weren't able to put her first is because you couldn't tolerate being falsely optimistic. Yeah, I mean, also just just generally on top of the fact that it was difficult. It was just a difficult, difficult situation. It was a difficult thing to process, you know, to go from having your sister who wanted to be a mom her whole life, having a kid for the first time, and she, you know, she was a great mom, and she would have been a incredible mom. I think that was like her calling, I think. She wanted kids since she, since she was a kid. Um, and we used to kind of tease her for that, like a playful teasing, but, um, so to, to, to have this blessing of a child and then one or one or two months later, get this horrible diagnosis. That was, uh, a, a pretty incredibly powerful 180. Um, time just kind of stopped. I think when I, when I got the, when I got the call from my mom to let me know that she had the diagnosis felt like everything just kind of slowed down and got quiet. I felt like I was entering this new part of my life. Can you tell me about that part of your life? What were you entering into? Um... I was entering a world without her. Uh, for the first time in my life. And um, that bothers me. Boy, that sounds like a shitty world. Yeah, I have never even met the woman, and I—I I mean, I didn't make a promise not to cry, so I get to cry. You can cry if you want to. I'm gonna grab it. Oh, I have one. <coughs> uh, she was a wonderful sister. I mean, it was a devastating loss. Yeah, that much is clear. <laughs> yeah, on on both accounts. Can I ask you something, Hutch? Yeah. Did you, I mean, so it sounds like you wanted to talk to her more. Um, but it sounds like you talked to her some, like while she was lucid. A little bit, yeah. Went up there. Did and, you? Yeah. Well, we went up there a couple, uh, I went up there with Esme a couple, I mean, um, Esme's my fiance. She came up with me one time and we did a, we did like a, the most COVID friendly visit that we could do it was all outside and uh you know we didn't we stayed at a hotel and you know we didn't we didn't do hugs um which is also like really difficult to go through yeah i was gonna say that sounds hard to go through an experience like that and not have the the freedom to hug hug her put her your arm like everything in me wanted to just comfort her in that way so that i mean covid really made the whole situation like a lot um so i did i did spend some time with her uh 
uh, and I did call her a, a few times and I texted her. Um, and then of course I was there for at the end, but she wasn't super lucid by the end a little bit. And then the last couple of days, not at all. Did you ever share with her your kind of negativity? No. No. She, 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 I never told her that I felt, I never told her that I thought she was going to probably going to die. No. Do you think she picked up on it anyway? I don't think so. I, I hope not. I don't, th I don't think so though. But it's a, you start to think about your own death too. Um, <clears throat> the finality of death is terrifying to me now in a way that, it, you know, I was always kind of afraid of death, but I think I'm even more afraid of death now. And uh, I don't have the benefit of a religious faith to help me cope with that fear. Um, can you help me understand what, what makes you afraid of death? I just, I think we live on a, on a very beautiful planet at a really crucially important and interesting time in terms of like the path of human development. And, and, um, I feel very blessed in the life that I have. I feel very blessed to be born when I was, uh, on this planet to be able to witness everything. I mean, it can be a shit show out there a lot of the times, but, and especially here in the States, oh boy. But, um, it's still a beautiful world that we live in. And the, the idea that, you know, when I die, probably never going to see it again. If, if reincarnation is real, I probably end up on another planet as an amoeba or something. Uh, so that, that thought is very sad to me. To, to not be able to see how the rest of the story plays out and to spend time with the people that I care about here. And um, it's just horrifying. It's a horrifying thought. So Hutch, I, I'm tempted to teach. <laughs> okay. Um, I, I don't know if it's appropriate or not, but... So especially, I think, because it's clear to me you've done a lot of work. Um, you have a therapist. So, you know, I just want to share some thoughts, if that's okay. I mean, I can ask you more questions if, if you like, but I'm really, I'd like to share some thoughts and really see what you kind of think about them. I'd be happy to um, listen for a while. Um, yeah, maybe give you a bit of a break. So... Where do I start? Can I have a second to kind of? Yeah, of course. I think the challenge here is I don't, I don't know how much of what I'm going to say is going to make sense, but I don't know. We'll try to figure it out. So let's just talk. So you had a sense of who you were growing up 
And I, I think that what I'm sort of hearing is that who you are has not really been set, set in stone and has fluctuated. And it, maybe actually it was kind of always down there. But depending on how turbulent the surface of the water is, you weren't able to really connect with who you were. Yeah. And I that think, you've done. I think that's a really good way of putting it. Yeah. And over time, you know, as you've gotten knocked about by the waves, you've sort of figured out the hard way who you are. You know, it was either get swept away or find that anchor, you know, that, that core of who you are and that you've done a lot of positive growth in that direction. Yeah, I think that I had to think about that, but yeah, I think that's, that's somewhat accurate. Yeah. So I think when your sister gets diagnosed with cancer, you know, it throws, it throws your world into confusion, right? Like, so the world, like, operated based on certain principles like i'm here like my my sister is meant to be a mother her entire that's what she's put on this earth to do yeah and now she's got a kid and and this is like you know we're figuring things out um you know i'm dating someone things are kind of going well like this is the way that life is supposed to be like had some bumpy patches a lot to be grateful for you know some struggles but like things are sort of sorting themselves out and you were feeling good about yourself yeah i was on a hot streak Good, yeah, good point in my life. And then, you know, the, the diagnosis hits and then, you know, tragedy hits with it. Um, you found yourself not being able to delude yourself into thinking she would make it. Uh, you started judging yourself for not being able to lie to someone that you cared about. Um, I know that's not the way that you think about it. I saw the way that you looked there for a second, but let's be on. And this is where the teaching kind of comes in. Mm -hmm. What we're talking about is lying. We don't really think about it that way. And this is sort of where the teaching kind of comes in is, um, you know, I've worked with a lot of people who have cancer and a lot of people who are, you know, terminally ill with cancer because I'm a psychiatrist and I trained at a general hospital, which means a lot of my work is not with psychiatric patients. It's actually, you know, there were something like 23 beds out of 960 that are for psychiatric patients. And the other 940 so some odd beds are for people who are hospitalized for medical conditions. And the cancer ward was quite big. So a lot of the work that I did was on the cancer wards. And, you know, I, I don't know if this is going to make you feel better or worse, because I can see your mind interpreting it kind of both ways. But I think one of the most terrifying things for a cancer patient is everyone around them is being hopeful. And they fucking know the odds, right? They're the patient. A doctor is going to explain to them. But since everyone around them is being hopeful, they can't show the abject terror that they feel inside. Because no one is there who like, like, you know, she can't break down and cry in front of her mom or her kid or, you know, the dad or, you know, like she can't afford to do that because we're all like in this play, right? Like we're like acting it out and we're going to hope because everyone tells people with cancer, like you got to hope, right? We place like a moral judgment on the right way to behave when faced with a terminal illness. And so, you know, my experience with, with those people is that 
the best thing that I could offer them was not hope, but a place where they didn't have to be hopeless alone. Because like hopelessness is one thing, and I think it's something you understand because it sounds like <laughs> you kind of did this. Being hopeless is one thing. Being hopeless alone is entirely something else. Yeah. And there's a part of me, and, and I don't want you to beat yourself up for this, but, th th you know, there's a part of me that wants to say that, you know, uh, I, I don't know, I'm just going to say it because I, I think it's authentic, that, like, what you had to offer your sister wasn't a mistake. That, like, the way that you felt about her, like, if everyone else is pretending that the 5% is going to roll, like, you don't think that she is unbe unbelievably terrified that the dice are not going to go her way. No, she told me, she told me as much. Yeah. Oh, so I'm, I'm really happy to hear that because I, I wonder, you know, why she told you. I asked her if she was afraid. And she told and me, she told me the truth. So, so, oh, thank God. Cause here I was, I was afraid cause I think that's the right move, honestly. And I was afraid that I was going to replace one kind of guilt with another, but now I actually feel really good. Because I think that's the kind of question that people who are offering someone false hope are not, they, they can't ask it. You get that? Like, we can't ask her if she's afraid. But if there's, if there's one thing that reassures me that you are a good brother to her, it's actually asking that question. Because she gets to share that, right? Because, like, when you asked her that question, like, those thoughts are there, man. She's living with them day in and day out, just like you lived with it day in and day out. Right? She's thinking about what's going to happen to her son. Like, she's thinking about all that shit. And she's keeping it inside. And there you are, terrified, right? So you ask, like, you're not like, hey, I'm afraid that everything's going to go to shit and you're going to die. Like, you're not dumping it on her. What you're really doing now, my waterworks are really going... <laughs> Um, just because I'm thinking about it. But like, I, I think that that's the most important question that you could have asked her. It's the most important thing you could have said. And what did she say when you asked her? I think I'll keep that between her and me. Sure. But she was, she was afraid. Yeah. I think the important thing, it, fair enough. I'm glad you drew that boundary, by the way. Um, but I cannot, in the purpose of teaching Hutch, I can tell you as, a, as someone who professionally works with terminally ill people, that question is the most therapeutic and supportive question you can ask. When someone is facing death, pretending it's not coming helps. I mean, don't get me wrong. But it's like insufficient, man. Having her brother understand and be willing to listen. Right? Like, because it sounds like she answered your question and like you listened. We don't have to go into it. But I'm hearing that, you know, you gave her a door to walk through and she needed to walk through it. Well, I told her I was scared too. And I, and I don't remember if the conversation went too much further after that. Other, and, I, and I feel like... <clears throat> There's a, there's a part of me that, that wishes I would have said more than that. Um, I asked her if she was afraid. She said, yes. I said, I am too. And, and um, it felt like a moment of honesty, and, uh, but, I, but I didn't want 
I, I could tell she was really struggling with that with that fear and um especially with her her mom instincts uh she want she wanted to be there for for her boy uh, and I put myself in her shoes and just imagine how devastating that must have been I think maybe I'm angry that there was just nothing I could say to make her feel better um and I wish that there was something it's just I think it's a natural instinct to to go back and scrutinize like the way that you behaved and like look for ways you could have done it better or whatever I think that's a very human thing to do mm -hmm. um but it, it's difficult to grapple with sometimes when I th when I think about that question like what could I have said or what could I have done differently and um yeah, it's been, it's been very challenging. So Hutch, I don't know if you're going to be able to hear or receive this. Um, but, and I, I never met your sister. I'm not omniscient. I've spent the better part of 16 years of my life trying to figure out how to help other human beings. And I think I've figured some of it out. And every instinct of everything that I've learned leads me to conclude that what you said in that moment helped immensely. Now, I'm not saying you couldn't have said more, but I think there's also something that we, I think this is a mistake on our part. We sometimes believe as a society that saying more is worth more. One moment of honesty in one moment of, because like, I, I don't, especially between like brothers and sisters, like you don't need to say a whole lot. Right? Yeah. Like, I, I remember when I got engaged, um, you know, my dad was like, I'm not sure she's the one for you, but if you really, like, if this is the one that you want, I'm behind you. And that was it. It was like one sentence. It's all I needed to hear. There wasn't a long discussion about whether she was the one or wasn't the one or whatever. Like, it was just like one sentence. But it means it, it was enough. And that that actually meant something to you. That was that was a you 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 took that as a a kind gesture. Yeah. So I can give you more examples if you want. Yeah. So the day I got so I I struggled to get into medical school for three years. I I really didn't much like yourself. I kind of didn't do great in college. Except I wasn't even dean's list the first semester. It was f straight out of the gate. And so for years, you know, I started medical school at the age of 27 or 28. And so there was a gap there between like undergrad for like five years where, you know, I wasn't really accomplishing much. And my dad was always like pretty supportive. You know, he didn't seem like disappointed in me or anything like that. But um, and I was terrified, right? Because like he's not going to say, hey, you're fucked for life. Like he never said that. Um, but I was like. I'm fucked for life. It's like 25 years old, yeah. no job, no money, no, you know, I'm not going anywhere. And so the day I got into medical school, um, 
you know, I still remember now I'm going to get emotional because he passed away uh, soon after I got into medical school. But, you know, he told me that like now that you've gotten and he was crying and he said, nothing is going to hold you back. And that's all he said. He was like, now that you've gotten your break, like nothing is going to hold you back. And it was like, it was honesty. And like, I realized in that moment that he was like terrified, just like I was. You know, and that like, I mean, he never showed it to me until that moment because, he, you know, everything was going to be fine then, presumably. And he was right. You know, I, I don't think I've been held back by much. And, and, but, you know, a few words are like, they can be transformative. Yeah. My my mom, she when she, when she called me to let me know that um, it was time to come up there, and her time was limited. One of the reasons why she wanted me to come up there was, you know, if there's anything that you want to say to her in person, then then this would be the time to do it. And I really really struggled with figuring out what I wanted to say, because I could say something that was five pages long, uh, with all the memories that we have and and all the different myriad ways that she positively impacted my life. Um, but I couldn't organize my thoughts all that much beyond just um, thinking about how much gratitude I had that she was my big sister. And I ended up just, that was all I, that was the thing that I said to her. I just asked her, you know, do you know how much I love being your little brother? And she kind of jokingly said, well, now I do. Like even towards, <laughs> even towards the end, she was trying to like make us laugh a little bit. And, um, but I think maybe that was enough. Like maybe that was enough of, of like telling her what I wanted, what I wanted to, you know, say. Um, maybe it wasn't, but, but yeah. Um, there's no manual for this. There's no, you know, there's no, there's, there's no book to tell you what to do in these situations and you just do your best, uh, just show up and do your best. And that's what I tried to do. Um, I'd like to be able to look back on that, on that, on that time that with some degree of acceptance. And I think I'm, that's what I'm struggling with. Accepting sure. that, that it happened the way that it did. What would have been enough Hutch? What does enough look like? I genuinely have no concept of, I have no idea. You know why? Because it's not a real thing. So now we get to the weird part, okay? Enough is an abstraction of the mind. Okay, Let, I, I may have to explain myself here. So you have an I so we have an identity, right? Like we have this like identity that kind of sets standards for ourselves. But like there is no such thing as enough. There's only what is. Like the only thing that exists is what you said. What does it mean if there's enough? How do we measure that? Right? Like let's be really precise here. Because I think that idea of enough is born out of your guilt. 
The two are intrinsically tied. And you want to hold on to your guilt. Like your guilt is like, sure, there's a part of you that wants to let it go, but there's something about not being enough for her, which got, it's hard to describe, but like, you know, I think the reason that, you know, guilt doesn't hold on to us, like we hold on to it. What possible reason would I have to want to hold on to guilt? Like what psychological need would that be fulfilling? Because of your sense of identity. Right. So if we look at why do people hold on to negative ideas, it's because of who they believe they are. But what does that say about my sense of identity, then? I'd say that there's an echo left over from your hard times, which, as you mentioned, has resurfaced. Because I think that you what like what would enough have been for like, it's ridiculous. You want to do enough for your sister that doesn't doing enough for your sister doesn't. Doing enough for your sister starts the moment she dies. That's not the end of doing enough for your sister. She's got a kid. You have a nephew. She's not going to be able to take care of him. You want to do enough? Do enough by that. It starts now, buddy. Forget it. Like, I mean, not, don't forget about her. It sounds mean. But like, seriously, like you're, you're, like, you're thinking about the wrong thing. Like, this is just starting. And the more that you get caught up in, like, doing enough... I mean, I think you did enough. I mean, she was... It sounds like you guys had a close relationship. It sounds like she felt loved. You know, she was joking at the end, but don't confuse humor for the real feelings underneath. And that's just all... Because, like, I mean, what could you... Like, it's the pandemic. You showed up when you could. You said what you were capable of. Could you have said more? Yes. But this is also where you have to like meet yourself where you're at, right? You can't expect yourself in the third grade to know what you know now about your identity. All that exists, were you enough back then in the third grade? I think it's like you said, I just was what I was. Exactly. And so when did that change? Were you enough in the fourth grade? Sure. Enough in the fifth grade? Sure. And somewhere along the way, something happens and you start becoming not enough. It's idiocy. It's ahamkara. It's ego. Go ahead. You want to say something? Um, that's, that's, uh, that feeling of not being enough, I th that, that's all I remember. I, I don't have a time in my life where I felt like I was enough. Um, yeah. So this is where the teaching comes in. So this is where the feeling has existed. It's just looking for a particular way to like thing to latch onto. Does that make sense? Yeah. And boy, is losing your sister a really easy thing for it to latch onto. Being enough has nothing to do with her. It has everything to do with you. And if you tell me that you've had the feeling of not being enough forever, well, yeah, right? That should give you evidence that you didn't do anything wrong by your sister. It's just there's something about your identity. It's something that you carry with you that makes you feel like you're, you're not enough. And if you pay attention and you go back and we ask you lots of different stories about your upbringing, we can come up with a time in fourth grade when you didn't feel like you were enough. And then your jokes weren't funny enough. And then you became a content creator and you made good content. And the next week you made content that didn't have as many views. And then you weren't good enough. And then you start dating this girl. 
and you were racked with insecurity because you don't know if you were enough. And then over time, you grew that, realized that was BS, and then you asked her to marry you, and now you're going to get married. We can see the enoughness, the lack of, oh, I'm not enough, I'm not enough. But in any of those individual situations, were you ever not enough for your fiance? No, bro, you've been you. You've been great. Do you need to grow? Sure. Are you going to continue to grow? Absolutely. You'd have to ask her. You ask her for me. See what she says. I think I know the answer. Yeah, I think I do too. And so not being enough is part of your, it's part of what you carry. And it's just really, really hard because it's like really easy for that insecurity to latch on to, I didn't say enough for my, my sister. It was like, what the fuck does enough even mean? Like, what are you going to like, like, what could you possibly say that will just think about the tragedy of her being a newborn, you know, having a newborn son and then dying of cancer. Like, what are you going to say? Like how you're not going to make a dent in that. You can only say what you can say. Right. And I think you actually did genuine, honestly, like my professional opinion is that like you offered her something really, really important, which is someone to be afraid with, which when the end is coming, like people don't want to put on a brave face. It's false. It's a lie. So I think that authenticity, and if we think about even like what I do on stream and stuff, like we don't pull punches, like, am I making you feel bad because we're both crying? Like, does it hurt to have this conversation? Of course, it, I never met the girl. I feel devastated. Right? I have my own grief. Does it mean it's bad that we should retreat away from this? Does it mean that it's bad that we should retreat away from the feeling of grief, you mean? Yeah, all of it. All the negativity. You know, my point is that, like, being someone that you can say, like, are you afraid? And she says yes. And then you saying I am too. Like, that's huge, bro. Like, objectively. You can go ask 100 grief counselors what they think about the value of that. But, like, generally speaking, when we get trained to, you know, deal with people in grief, like, we get trained not to tell them, hey, everything's going to be okay. What they actually train us to do is, like, help them be with them in the negativity. So I'm pretty sure yeah. it, it seems very counterintuitive because you, you, your instinct is to protect them from that feeling, protect them yes. from that feeling of uh, sadness and fear. But you're not going to protect them from shit, dude. Your, your sister knows you can't, you know, and, and that's why, like, for example, when I work with people who are suicidal, I will say very counterintuitive things. So when someone's suicidal and I say, cheer up, you have so much left to live for. How do you think that makes a suicidal person feel? I'd probably roll my eyes at you if you said that to me if I was in a suicidal place. Exactly. Isolated. Alone. Makes the suicidality worse. Instead saying, hey, help me understand why life isn't worth living. Wow, that sounds awful. It sounds like you don't have a lot left to live for. Right? You don't want to leave them alone. And then once you're with them, once they're not alone, then you can start moving forward. Right? Then I can say, hey, I understand why you feel that way. I'm having trouble being hopeless when I listen to you. Everything you're saying is correct, but I still have hope in spite of that. What do you think about that? 
So authenticity and honesty is like the basis of human emotional support. Okay. So, I, I mean, I, I, I know I kind of bounced around, but I, I think kind of going back to this yeah. idea, if you, felt, if you felt like you've never been enough, like that's what you need to work on. But that doesn't have to do with her, right? And I, I meant what I say earlier in terms of like if she passed away, like enough doesn't start with her, end with her death. It starts with her death. Well, how do you even begin to start challenging a voice that's as loud and ingrained? as the one that I'm describing that says that I'm not enough. I can't think of okay. that is the loudest voice in my, I'm a content creator. We're all insecure fucking lunatics. We're all messes. Uh, Self-esteem comes from like metrics and stuff like that. It's just so. Yeah. Alien. It's a beautiful question. Yep. And your answer is right there. You don't challenge it. You accept it. So there is a part of you that feels like you're not enough. And how do you treat that part of you? Uh, like it's an authority. Okay. So, it's not a, the answer it's, it's not I was a, it's looking... A, it's not a belief. It's like a, it's a conviction. It's not a, I wonder yep. if I'm not enough. It's, no, you are not I'm enough. with you. So I may have to change my answer, um, but I'm going to share what I wanted to share with you anyway. So... The thing is, you're trying to get rid of it, right? It would make my life a lot easier, I think. So I think that's why it's not going away. So when there's a part of ourselves, so I, I would say that how do you start challenging something like that? You, if you want to get rid of it, the way that you do that is not by challenging it, by actually accepting it. So... There's a big difference between arguing with yourself when you say, I am not enough, and arguing with yourself and saying, no, I am enough, and then you guys fight in your mind. No peace will come from that. I'm sure you've tried it a thousand times. No peace comes from fighting against yourself. A house divided itself against itself cannot stand. You can't think your way out of that kind of thinking. You can't. So what you can do is say, I'm not enough, and that's okay. And then you just live your life and put one foot in front of the other? Sort of. <laughs> it's harder than I'm making it sound, which I'm hearing the skepticism in your voice. No, that wasn't right? skepticism, actually. I, I, okay. I, I understand that to a certain so, degree. It, so so it's, it, it's to understand that that feeling of not being enough was not something that is random. You were taught that, right? How does a child, you think about your nephew. Does your nephew think he's enough? Oh, yeah. He, he plays with blocks. He's having a great time. Yeah. And so, like, if you think about it, how does a child like that start to believe that they're not enough? Because someone teaches it to them. They learn it. So what you need to understand is that somewhere within you, like, there's something that you learned, right? Because it's such a strong belief. Like, it's not, you know, I, I don't know that there's, like, a not enough circuit in your brain. I mean, there sort of is, but it's neither here nor there. But I, I think that what it comes down to is somewhere along the way, like you felt like you were not enough. And now what happens is there's a part of you that's telling you you're not enough. And what are you doing? You're pushing it away. Right? 
you're telling it you're not good enough. You need to stop telling me that I'm not good enough. You see that? It's like cyclic. I know it's kind of getting abstract, but you are. So there's a part of you that's telling you that is not being accepting towards yourself. That's telling you to do better. And what are you telling your mind? You need to do better. You need to start telling me I'm enough. Fuck you. Do better. Toxic part of my mind. Get the hell out of here. I, I typically don't have that kind of a self dialogue though. It's, it's, uh, it's more of a, like, yeah, I'm not enough. Yeah. Okay. And then I just either make a joke of it or, or, or cope in some other way. Yeah. So I don't, I, I'm <clears throat> using a little bit of hyperbole with my dialogue. I don't think you respond to it that way, mm -hmm. but I do think that that's a shade of not acceptance. So I think you've learned how to cope with it. That's what I'm really hearing is you've heard, you've learned healthy coping mechanisms in response to that voice, but you haven't figured out how to uproot the voice. Well, if I do, what would that make me though? Cause like one of the reasons I, you know, I can be kind of funny. Like I, just, you know, some people are a lot more funnier than me, but I can be kind of a funny guy. And that is one of the ways that I dealt with feelings of inadequacy. It was just turning everything into a joke. Um, so if I were to uproot that part of me that tells me that I'm not enough, I have concerns about my long-term financial well-being. What if I'm no longer funny? Like, what if I'm no longer interesting or entertaining? And if now we understand why it stays. Because you're afraid of what would happen to you if it goes. So do you want to change that part of yourself? Yes and no. Or do you want... There we go. Right? So this is the really confusing thing. When I, you asked me earlier, why would someone want to hold on to their guilt? Why the fuck would someone want to hold on to the toxic voice in their head that's telling them that they're not enough? Now you have the answer. Yeah. So understand that everything in your mind, so like this is kind of cool. Like if you don't believe in any religions or spirituality or stuff like that, let's assume biology for a second. Or maybe you do, I don't know. I'm I'm I I think that there is something much much bigger than me and I choose not to try to define it. So I'm I'm open to I'm not I don't get offended cool. by other people's religious beliefs or anything. Yeah, yeah. I I was just anyway, that was an interesting aside. We can talk about that in a second. But let's let's talk about so your mind, like you have neurons, right? And neurons like have like action potentials and they fire and they calm down and they depolarize and they move sodium and potassium. Like there's like science and biology and chemistry and biochemistry and physics that governs everything in your brain. And your brain has evolved. This is kind of weird. Just think about this for a second. Mm -hmm. Your brain has evolved with the ability to be anxious, with the ability to be afraid, with the ability to feel guilty. Why the hell does, do our brains have the capability? Like, why aren't we just happy all the time? We could have evolved that way. Why does your brain torture you? Like, this is a system that was designed to produce this, right? Mm -hmm. And so what people don't understand is that all emotions have evolutionary benefit. All emotions have value. All emotions have function. If they didn't have function, it wouldn't have evolved. Yeah, okay. You know? Mm-hmm. So it's kind of interesting because even this idea of not being enough, what I'm hearing is that it propels you, you use it. And yeah. so what would happen if it went away? Yeah. You're afraid that you wouldn't be funny anymore. That's what I'm hearing. Not just that though. I'm afraid of a cascading series of just 
mental collapse just not just like how i am in my job but like what kind of a boyfriend would i be what kind of a friend would i be what kind of a general person would i be and that question yes. that question mark is what scares me the un the unknown of uh, oh, letting that go i don't you know i don't think it's an unknown bro you remember what it was like before you learned how to crack a joke in the second grade uh yeah that's what you'd go back to well because how did you get I'm not trying to regress into the like a seven-year-old. I want to be like a exactly, which is why you're not going to let go of your your fuel for jokes. You see that? Because yeah. you learned how to be funny and you learn how to get people to like you. And where does the fuel from your jokes come from? The sense of inadequacy, pain, the pain. You're damn right. Pain, yes. Yeah, and so who would you be without your pain? So now we come back to identity. You'd be who you are. I'm just afraid that I wouldn't be interesting at that point. Yep. Oh. But you will be. Don't worry about that. I mean, you are worried about that, which is okay. So we have to meet you where you're at and let yourself be afraid. So I know it's kind of weird, but like you're afraid that people won't like you if you get better. Right? That you won't be funny. That there'll be a collapse. You know, there's, there's, I'm of two minds on that because I have, you should have seen me like 12 years ago, Doc, because I was, I was a fucking mess. Like, and, and you could see it. I wore it on my face. Like if you tuned into my videos, like people used to leave comments like, are, are you okay? <laughs> like how I looked physically because I wasn't taking care of myself. And, um, uh, and, and since that point, I have gotten better. I've gotten healthier. I've, I've progressed. And I have my own like little community on, on Twitch here. And they see that and they comment about that and they give me, you know, praise for that. And it, and it feels good to, to know that, I mean, I already know that I I've gotten better, but to, to, to have other people see that happening is, is validating to me. It, 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 um, and so it, it matters on that level. So I, sure. do, I do, I do recognize that like that it's, it's sort of a, it's sort of a, um, a false expectation that, people would no longer be interested in, in who I am or my content or whatever if I were to get better. There's a part of me that recognizes that, 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 that's, that that's false. How interesting. But I still, right? so, but I still grapple with it. It's like a... I'm with you. Yeah. So w most of what keeps us stuck, so this is another common misconception. When we get stuck, we think that we don't know what to do or that we lack motivation. Yeah. But most of the time, what keeps us stuck is conflict. Because there's the doubt, right? There's like, and, and it's, it's been fascinating to talk to you, bro, because it's clear to me that you've done an immense amount of work. So what I see is someone who's like halfway there or even well past halfway. It's like 75, 80%. Oh, and I pray. Yeah, I know. It's, it's, it's shocking. Shocking. But I, I think that's really the issue, right? Is, is like, so, and what's happening is, what these people are teaching you, and I know it's kind of weird, but I think Twitch is doing a lot of good in the world. But what they're teaching you is that, oh, you're not like a screwed up degenerate that used to be kind of funny, and we accept you anyway. Right? Um, we can be proud of how far you've come. Well, chat roasts me harder than anybody else on the internet, but they do it out of kindness, I think. Exactly. So that's also where like they say they roast you, right? But they also like they do it 
it's kind of like I, I run a group for esports professionals and one of them got a girlfriend. Oh boy. And the funniest thing was, man, they would not leave him alone. His, they were like... His teammates were roasting him for it? Uh, not just his teammates. It's like kind of a more open group for uh, esports. Everyone was okay. roasting him. They just could not stop giving him shit. And so I was like, what? Are, and if you look at everyone's smiling, right? Okay. And then I was like asking people, I was like, why, you know, what are we doing here? Like I asked the person, like, how do you feel? Everyone's giving you shit. And he's like, I kind of feel like embarrassed, but I sort of feel good. And we ask everyone else, like, how do y'all feel? And we're like, we all feel good. Well, so they're smiling. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's like, what we're actually doing, this is the way that men communicate their approval. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's the negative expression of a positive affection. Yeah, that pisses me off sometimes. I like like I buy into that bullshit a lot because yep. cuz yep. I just I'm programmed to to do that, but sometimes I really get bothered by the fact that guys it's hard for it's hard for a lot of men. And I think that's getting better, which is it gives me a sign it's a sign of um the sign that you should be optimistic about where things are headed. Everybody talks about how everybody's becoming such sensitive babies these days and it's all bullshit cuz I I think it's a good thing that that men are starting to feel more safe to express those emotions but yeah it, it, yeah. it does bother me sometimes i wish people i wish friends could just simply just say like i'm fucking proud of you you did a good thing that's so great without having to wrap it into some sarcastic yeah you know bullshit whatever roast i mean 20 years ago if we were crying the way that we were 20 you know maybe half an hour ago we'd have to toss out no homos yeah people right? yeah people would be like you, you know people can see you right like this is live yeah. and i can actually see you crying yeah and we were crying and what are we doing now hutch we're smiling yeah oh. right so i if that bothers you i want to actually commend you because you coming on here and expressing your emotions is going to be rewiring the neurons of every person who's watching they're going to be learning Right, that it's actually okay to express myself. Well, I that sure, I don't have to rap. I sure hope so. Yeah, oh. and I think that's what you're doing with your podcast too. I, th I think you're showing people that it's okay to struggle. Yeah, that's the goal. Yeah. Kind of. <laughs> did you? Um, I wanted to kind of go back to this conflict for a second. Which conflict? So just the not enough business. Uh huh. Yeah. I just want to kind of tie that up. If you have other questions, um, that's fine. But, uh, you know, so here's what I sort of understand. There's a part of you that's felt like for a long time, you haven't felt like you, it's enough. Did you kind of get what I was saying that that, how can I say this? So sometimes we have these things in our minds that are looking for excuses. So the best example I can come up with is I had a, I had a, a patient who had been cheated on by someone they cared about a lot. Um, they found out like just before they got married. And so they called the wedding off quite traumatized for it. Brutal. And then their afterward, their mind would like look for reasons why their future partners would be cheating on them. They were like paranoid for it. Does that make sense? Yeah. And, and so what happens is in our mind, once we have a belief about ourselves, like I'm not worthy enough, like I'm like, she started to think really negatively about herself, right? Because when you get cheated on, you feel like you did something wrong. Yeah, that sounds You can blame right. the other person, but you also feel like there's something fundamentally wrong with you. Mm -hmm. And so any sign in the external world for her internal psychological complex, she'd like latch onto. Okay. Yeah. I see. Right. 
And so that's just how the mind works. Like once I have a belief about something, you can see this in politics because, you know, I know you do some political content now. Like people who have a political belief will sift information to reinforce whatever they believe. Mm -hmm. So it's just a function of the brain. It's a function of our psychology. And if you have this thing in, in you, this authoritative voice that tells you I'm not enough, it's going to find whatever it needs to from time to time, depending on your emotional state. Like if you're feeling good about yourself, the voice will be quiet. But if you ever start getting into a dark place, it'll reactivate and it'll find reasons. And boy, the death of your sister is just a juice. Like how on earth are you going to fight against its authority there? It's not even a contest. And no wonder you say, yes, sir, when it says something to you now, because it's playing a trump card. You didn't call her enough. You know? Yeah. And, and as that part of you, so how do you deal with that? One is I'm seeing that you're starting to deal with it already because you're starting to recognize, oh, like I used to be this degenerate on, on YouTube and now I've like cleaned myself up and people are like, they're like, good job. <laughs> right? Yes. And so you, you can, and, but there's, there's still that conflict. And then there's also these other confusing things that you have about, you know, if I really fix myself, if I get to be like completely normal, like what if people don't think I'm funny because so much of our humor comes from pain. Mm -hmm. And this is where I'd reassure you, Hutch, just because you feel better about yourself doesn't mean you're going to lose access to that. You'll know what it feels like to be in pain. You'll be able to, you, you know, it's an old friend. You don't need a GPS to navigate that road anymore. Like, you know it by heart. Is and the, it's, I wanted to ask a question. Um, yeah. Is the problem of identity of people not having a strong sense of who they are, is this a common thing that's out there? I mean, it's just something that I, I've struggled with in such a pronounced way for, for my whole life. Uh, and I see some people, obviously, I don't have access to like every detail of their lives, but they seem so comfortable in their own skin. I feel like an alien a lot of the times. Just wondering how common that is. Yeah, so it's a universal human condition and it's getting worse. So if you look at like, you know, the sense of who you are as a person, we talked a little bit about how not being enough, like that's not a real thing. Like literally, it's not a scientific thing. It's a construction of the mind. You are what you are. And the more that you begin to realize that, the more comfortable you'll be in your own skin because you can't be any different. Is it, get, is it getting and, and, worse because of social media and the standards? That yes. You, yeah. Okay. Yes, absolutely. And why would you ask about social media? What's your hypothesis there? Uh, I mean, I just spend way, uh, way too much time on Twitter sometimes. Like, way too much time. <laughs> and, and, um, it's gotten better, but I still have days where I'll be on Twitter interacting with people for like eight hours. And I feel like absolute shit at the end of it. And then I wake up the next day and maybe do it again. Like it's, it's, it's like uh, sort of like alcoholism in that, in that regard. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about that for a second. And then we'll talk about you and why it's been hard for you and what that means for your karma. My karma. Okay. So the okay. Yep. Oh, yeah. We're going to go off the rails now. Okay. You ready? I'm down. So Hutch, the first thing to understand is that there's a self. You remember how he's talking about there's turbulent stuff at the top and then there's you down below? So the Buddha called that the self, Buddha, Buddhism. Mm -hmm. He called that the self. The interesting thing is if you look at, ask these like yogis from thousands of years ago, what is the self? The answer they came up with was neti neti. And neti means not this. 
So if you ask someone, if you ask these yogis, what is the self? Is it a person? They'll say, it's not that. Is it a cosmic thing? They'll say, it's not that. Is it black? Not that. Is it white? Not that. Is it conscious? They'll say, no. Is it unconscious? No. The, the self is formless. And so I know it sounds kind of weird, but we'll ask you to do this in a second. You know, I'll ask you to like meditate. So like close your eyes and notice that there's like an experiencer. We'll go through this more formally in a second. Okay. But like there is a thing. No, not right now. There's a thing that experiences all of your life. So the experiences can be separated. There's happiness and sadness. But who is the person who is experiencing the happiness or sadness? It kind of goes like one level, like deeper into the matrix. And what they sort of realized is they followed the, the, the matrix all the way back to its source. And what they found was the self. Mm-hmm. So then what they sort of discovered is that that thing is formless. And we'll, help, we'll show you how to get there in a second, sort of, or take one step. And then what they realized is that we also have an identity. But the identity and the self are two different things. So the identity is what they called the ahamkara or the ego. And the identity is anything about you. It is not you. It is anything about you. So anything you can put down on a piece of paper is part of your ego. But it's not really who you are. So, for example, I call you Hutch. Mm-hmm. Is that your name? Well, sure. I mean, my, my first name is Sean. But people call you Hutch. Yeah. People call you Sean. Mm-hmm. Which one is you? I think they're both me. How does that work? I don't know. I didn't think about it that much. I just answered reflexively. Yeah, it's weird, right? So like, I would say that those things are both you and neither of them are you, right? If I like, you know, does your nephew know that your name is Sean? Uh, I don't know. He's very, very young. So I, I don't, I don't know if he knows my name quite yet. The answer is probably no, but does he know who you are? Yeah. How is that possible? Um, cause this little tiny human brain is forming memories. Sure. Right. So there's something going on there, but name isn't a part of it. So if you think about who am I, if you ask me, who am I? I'm going to say my name. I'm Alok. Like the first thing that we answer with is actually false. It's not who we are. It's just something that we attach to ourselves. Anything that you put on a resume is not who you are. It's part of your identity for sure, but it's not part of the self. And so the fundamental confusion that we have is we start to identify with our identity, which we can't really blame ourselves for, right? Yeah. Because when I think about like, if I start to think of myself as like, I'm a doctor and I attach myself to that identity, or I think of myself as I'm someone who applied to medical school three times in a row and failed to get in. That's all part of identity. It's all things that I can put on my resume. It's like people can ask me about it, but it's not who I am, right? It's just attributes of my life. And that's where our suffering comes from. Because when I start to attach myself of of being a doctor, I can become prideful, which is going to be a source of suffering. Mm Because once I have pride, there are doctors who are better than I am. Why don't I get respected as much as other people do? Mm -hmm. You know, there are doctors on TikTok who have more followers than I do. So any kind of seemingly positive thing that comes out of identity actually brings suffering with it. And then what if I lose my medical license? Then suffering comes with it. So all of the attributes of our, of our identity are the cause of our suffering. That's what Buddha would say. And that the closer that you get to who you are, 
And you sort of remember this, right? Because you had this fluctuating identity. Didn't matter what the fuck it was. Like, it could have been whatever. It still sucked. Until you got the hell away from all of it. And I would venture that, I don't know if you've ever put your nephew to sleep, but if you've ever put your nephew to sleep, if you haven't, you should try it sometime. Uh, and hopefully you'll fall asleep. He lives all the way up in the Bay Area, so I don't get okay. to see him as much as I'd like. So maybe one day you'll have kids, and then you'll understand this. When you put your kid to sleep, like, there's no hutch. There's no content creator. There's no... Or maybe you've got a fiancé, right? So I don't know if you've, like, ever fallen asleep with your fiancé, or she's ever fallen asleep and you've just, like, laid in bed with her. And in that moment, like, you're not... You don't have a beard. You don't have a certain hair color. You're not, like, a particular height. You just are you. And you're holding her. And there's just an experience there. Okay. And the more that you tap into that experience, or you don't have a bank account, you don't have a mortgage, you don't even have a name. You're just like a human. And you're in, enveloped within that experience, and it feels fucking amazing. Watching a sunset. You know? Yeah. Like, taking a really good piss after you've been right. driving for a long time. Yeah, and at that point, I chase, yeah. I chase that feeling, that, that clarity, I suppose you could call it, the, the uh, stillness. I, I've chased that feeling with all kinds of destructive ways throughout my life because my thoughts are so loud. And so gambling would quiet those thoughts or drugs may have quiet, quieted those <sighs> thoughts or sex may have quieted those thoughts. And so or, or, or obsessively playing video games or chess, I mean, just... I would chase that feeling of stillness because whenever I would not have something to stimulate my mind, these loud negative thoughts would just sort of swim in my mind. With you 100%, right? So now we come to social media and dopamine. Yes, yeah. So what happens, the so first thing is that social media amplifies our ego because what we're doing is we're not showing, we're showing ourselves to the world right? It's all about display. It's all about resume. It's all about what you show. It's not about who you are. And so as we're, that we actually have a lot of like stuff that is moving us away from our self and into our identity. And so suffering is coming with it, but holy shit, is it dopaminergically reinforcing because mm. it feels good, right? Sometimes. Yeah. And it, and it feels bad, which then begs the question, why on earth are we doing it if it feels bad? So, you know, like you're kind of saying, you're on Twitter for eight hours and that's where like what's happening is we're getting like that dopamine reinforcement without any sort of like spiritual gratification. Yeah. It's like spiritually yeah. empty. Yes. Right. Yeah. And so this is where what we, what we tend to find is that people chase oblivion. They chase the stillness. They actually chase nirvana, which is like the state of enlightenment mm -hmm. with drugs because it like it gets us kind of close to there. And this is why, like, Buddha figured this out. And he was like, you can get to that sense of peace consistently and even permanently. You can live in that way where 24-7, you are detached from your identity and you're just living as an experiencer. And that is enlightenment. I don't know how and that he was like, in the Western world, but yeah. So it, it wouldn't, right? So this is the challenge is that, like, someone who's enlightened doesn't care about their resume. And so they won't necessarily chase success. Yeah. And so it is problematic. He ran into a lot of problems in his material life. <clears throat> and then we kind of get to why you've struggled for it. Why this has been a problem for you. And that's because your karma is to learn. 
So I think you've been given, so I've noticed this really interesting trend, which is that people who have a lot to be grateful for suffer a lot in terms of questions of like identity. Mm -hmm. And so there's an interesting, there's even an interesting theory that the more ready you are for spiritual growth, the greater advantages you'll be born with. Because you can't meditate on an empty stomach. You can't chase enlightenment if you have to worry about making rent at the end of the month. Literally, the adrenaline and cortisol and the stress, you don't have time for any of that crap. Mm -hmm. It feels and a bit... I, I, I don't know if... I, it feels a bit like holier than now, though. To think like, sure. well, I had good karma, therefore I've been, you know, I've had some financial yeah. success. Yeah. I don't like so, thinking about so, it in terms of separating me from other people. It could have been just a crapshoot, just total luck, luck of the draw. Yeah, so that's your ego as well. So any comparison that you make to another person is your ego. Okay. We're not talking about other people. We're talking about you. Okay. You know, if you think about taking care of your nephew, does that make you a better uncle than most people? Sure. Most people aren't going to do as much for their nephew as you will, because most people's nephews still have a mom. But we're not concerned about them. We're not saying that you're holier than thou. It's just, it's your fucking duty. It is, it is you. Okay. It has nothing to do with anyone else. All right. So I wouldn't worry about that. Like, seriously, I, I'm, I, this is an important point. And it's all their, it's their karma too. Don't worry about it. Okay. <laughs> so I say this to a lot of people. But it's important for you to understand that like this, like this is an important question for like your growth as a human. You know, and I, I think you're grappling with it, which I think is super healthy. Like, it's fantastic. The question being, who am I or what am I? Yes. Yes. And this idea of like, you know, when I share with you that you're not and not, not enough is not a real thing. Hmm. All you've ever been is what you are. And all you will ever be is what you are. And the more centered you become in that, the happier you'll be. I get kind of tripped up on, I just, I, sometimes I think about, the fact that I'm one bad year of away from being a monster, you know, like I don't, if I go through some, some people that we, we consider to be evil or whatever, um, they had a young self. They had a young pure self at one point and then something happened to them. People don't choose to become evil and do evil things. So sometimes I think about like the fragility of, of, uh, identity and how it can be broken down by horrible and traumatic experiences. And I get afraid. And what if something really fucked up happens to me? And then I turn into a monster. I don't, I don't think about that so much any, anymore these days. I have those thoughts less, but that was one thing I got really tripped up on when I was about 19 or 20. I couldn't see a meaningful difference between me and you know, evil people. All turbulence at the top. I'm not saying that you didn't see... I'm with you that you had those thoughts. But even if you're a monster, I know it sounds kind of weird, you are what you are, right? And I, I know that sounds kind of like a weird spiritual statement, but it's actually like a scientific statement. No, I understand. Like you can't, you know? And so that's where like, and the more you begin to understand that, like sometimes you got to be careful because you'll have like false gurus who will use that as justification to do horrendous things. The most common example is, you know, spiritual gurus who put their dick where it doesn't belong. Nexium. That happens all the time. So, but, but I actually think that on some level, like, you know, you have to understand that we're all one step away from becoming a monster. That's how we, 
you have to respect it. Right? That's what's going to make you like a good person. Like is like the the people the people who commit the worst evils in the world are the ones who are convinced that they're righteous and they're not monsters. Sure. Yeah. So so I and I think this this also goes into like non-dualism and things like that but this is just the idea that there's neither good nor bad there's just what is like like you know go outside and look at a flower is the flower good or is it bad then look at a blade of grass is the blade of grass good or bad yeah now if your mind is comparative it'll say that the flower is prettier than the blade of grass then you'll assign a judgment you won't accept things as they are and then you'll elevate some people and you'll you'll denigrate others the blade of grass is just doing its thing yeah that's isn't that more or less the whole point of the yin yang the, the the fact that the it's all encompassed in one circle, so that's uh, duality is an illusion. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. And so, are you a monster or are you a good person? I mean, I can be a shitty person for sure, but I I, I genuinely try to be a good person. I try to be an empathetic person. Yeah. So I think as long as you live that way, right? So as long as you recognize that there's both within you then I think you'll move towards being a better person. And, and if we think about like, you know, what that core is, that core of you is capable of everything and nothing. Are you Sean? Are you Hutch? Well, I'm kind of both. And there, there are arguments to be made that that's a contradiction, that you can't be two people, Sean. Right? People will say like, you can't be both. Right. That's stupid. You got to have one name. But no, that's not how it is. There, it's neither you you're not a monster you're not a good person you are what you are everything and nothing yep yeah yeah okay well you've given me a lot to think about well, that's what we're here for um i've really enjoyed this conversation by the way thanks thank you for having me on i appreciate the insight yeah me too yeah how do you feel about learning a little bit of meditation uh, my thoughts get loud, but I'm down. I'm, I'm, I'm open to the experience. Okay. So if this isn't, um, <clears throat> if this is hard for you, not a big deal. There are other techniques that we'll, we'll send you. So we have a, I, I we made a meditation guide and you should get access to that oh. just cause you're a guest on stream. That'd be great. So, you know, you can watch that and there are a bunch of techniques like introductory things that you can start with, but based on where you are, there's a particular technique that I want to share with you. And it's kind of tricky. So it's sort of an advanced technique and you may not be ready for it yet. You may have to work up to it, but I still want to share it with you. Okay. So I'm going to start reading to you. Okay. But what I want you to do is close your, so sit up straight. So your spine should be straight when you meditate. And then I'm going to start saying different things to you. Okay. Gotcha. But what I, and then I'm going to instruct you to pay attention to different things while I'm speaking to you. Okay. It's going to be weird, okay? Right. So first, I'm going to ask you to pay attention to the words that I'm saying. All right? And then what I'm going to ask you to pay attention to is not the words, but where the words enter your ear. So I want you to notice not what you hear, but the faculty of hearing. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so what we're going to sort of recognize is that the words are outside of you, right? There's you, and then there's the words on the outside. With me? Yeah. 
And how do we determine that the words are on the outside? It's because you are observing them. So you're the observer and they're the object of observation, right? And so then what's going to happen is when I ask you to observe the faculty of hearing, is the faculty of hearing a part of you or is it then outside of you? Okay, so I know it's, it's weird. Feels inside? I, I don't know. It does feel inside. That's why we're going to do this practice. Okay. So um, I want you to start by listening to my words. Okay. And just try to, you know, interpret them and understand them. So the development of adult attachment styles for lessons. Why are some adults secure or insecure in their relationships? The authors review four lessons they have learned from longitudinal research on the developmental antecedents of adult attachment styles. First, although adult attachment appears to have its origins in early caregiving experiences, those associations are weak and inconsistent across measurement domains. Second, attachment styles appear to be more malleable in childhood and adolescence. So now what I want you to do is don't listen to my words. I'm going to keep reading, but I want you to pay attention to the faculty of hearing. Notice your ability to hear and don't really focus on the words, okay? Third, early experiences do not determine adult outcomes. Fourth, there is still a lot to learn, and future research requires examining relationship-specific attachment patterns, the distinction between distal and proximal factors, and interactions between relational and genetic vulnerabilities. Addresses. University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, USA. University of Minnesota, USA. Corresponding author. Fraley R. Chris. So now what I want you to do, I'm going to keep reading to you in a second, is move between hearing my words right now and noticing the faculty of hearing. And notice that as the experiencer, you can observe the words on the outside and the words are on the outside and the person who experiences it is on the inside. But as you notice, now go to the faculty of hearing. And notice that as you as you move into the faculty of hearing, suddenly the experiencer goes further within. And your ability to hear is actually outside of you now. You're observing it from within. It's no longer a part of you, but is actually outside of you. And now what we're going to do is open your eyes and look at my face and see my face. See the different, now look at your room. Notice all the different objects in your room. And I want you to pick one direction. And instead of looking at an object, let your eyes remain open. Notice the faculty of sight. So notice that there is a looking, not on any particular object, but that there's like all sorts of objects there and that there's a looker and put your attention on the site itself, not the object of the site. Does that make sense? As much as it can. And so if you want to do the third level of this practice, you can actually notice the faculty of sight, okay? Then what you can do is look at a picture of your sister. And what you'll see is that within the, when you look at the picture of sister, 
There's the object. You can notice the faculty of sight. And then there's an internal emotional experience that'll happen when you see her. And then what I want you to do is zoom out and look at that emotional experience. There'll be sadness. There'll be grief. There'll be tragedy. There'll be love. But you can even take a step back from that and just look at all of those feelings. And when you keep on going all the way inside, what you'll notice is that even though you feel sad, there'll be peace in spite of the sadness. And then eventually, if you keep going, you'll find what's at the bottom of the ocean and that everything above it is waves. Is that the same thing as catharsis? So I'd say catharsis is a slice of this process, but it goes deeper than catharsis. Yeah. So what, a, what catharsis is, what I'd say is that as long as the mind is turbulent, we can't see inside. And all the knowledge is really at the bottom. Mm -hmm. What catharsis is, is like a, a moment where all the waves are still. And then we can see into something. And then we have like this revelation that is like transformative. Yeah. But it goes even deeper than that. So I'd say that there are stages of enlightenment. And I'd say catharsis is arguably like catharsis in the flow state are like early, early, early stages of samadhi or temporary enlightenment. Okay. Gotcha. <clears throat> well, I did feel um, a bit calmer after that exercise. Immediately opening, opening my eyes felt like I was in a different place. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think the good news is that the spiritual stuff, like we don't really know much if any of that shit works. We just don't know. There just isn't data. The good news is that any of it will affect your cortisol and neuroadrenaline. Any of it will affect your CO2, your respiratory rate, your O2. All those things, no spiritual stuff aside from like a physiologic perspective, there's overwhelming data that, you know, any kind of mindfulness practice will help. So at the least, you'll get some kind of physiologic benefit. And if any of this weird spiritual stuff happens to be correct, you may get something a little bit more. How often do you meditate? Do you do it every day? So I do different kinds of meditation. There's one sort of meditation that I've done every day, um, but at a minimum of three breaths is, is like kind of the core meditation that I do. And then I'll do like formal meditation practices, maybe about 20 minutes a day, three to five days a week. Okay. Seems like a realistic yeah. goal. Yeah. So I'd start with five minutes. And it, I don't know if you know, but our practice was like two or three minutes. That's it, man. So like, you don't have to do a whole lot to feel a little bit better. I was teaching this one practice in the, the emergency room that was like 180 seconds and people loved it. It was enough for them. Hmm. But I had cool. um, one more question for you, if that's, a, if sure. that's okay. Yeah. You said that you worked with um, terminally ill patients. I'm wondering what kind of an effect that had on you. I mean, how did you, how do you not succumb, succumb to the overwhelming sadness you must have felt connecting with these people that were coming to the end of their lives? What does what does maintenance for a therapist look like? <laughs> it's a beautiful question. So, um, how did it affect me? It helped me understand life in a profound way. So I am grateful for that. There's a handful of experiences I'm really grateful for, and that's definitely at the top of the list. Yeah, I imagine. Because, you know, we live our entire lives like getting caught up with crap that doesn't matter. 
talking about like, oh, you know, so-and-so didn't like invite me to their birthday party. You know, and like, there's like even crap going on, like in the residency where like, you know, there's like a class president and like people are applying for crap. And this person, like five people are applying for this grant and only one person got it. It's all kind of crap that our ego gets wrapped up in that we think is important because it has to do with me. So the biggest lesson that I learned is like a lot of that crap doesn't matter. It really gives you perspective. Yeah. And as for how I survived, well, I noticed the emotions and then I stepped away from them. Right. So like, even like I was super sad with you, like I felt tragedy and so be it. Right. That's not tragedy is not, I know it sounds kind of weird, but it's not a bad part of life. It's just a part of life. No, I understand that. <clears throat> so. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate the, um, little bit of clarity you helped me get today. It means a lot. To me. Yeah. Thank you for coming on and, and sharing. And I really, you know, appreciate the work that you do. Do you want to tell us where we can find, um, especially like your podcast and some of the newer things like you stream on Twitch, YouTube, like where can we find you? Yeah. If you just search. So on Twitter, it's Hutchinson. It's my last name on YouTube. It's Hutch on Twitch. It's Hutch. And if you're looking for the podcast where I talk to other creators about mental health stuff, it's called fitter happier and you can find it on Spotify and Apple at this point. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, that's my little neck of the internet. So thank you so much, Hutch, for coming on and, um, you know, good luck on your wedding and congratulations, bro. Thank you. I, I really appreciate that. Take care, man. Bye. You too. Bye.